the way our faith has been twisted and misused has actually diminished the gift of our faith. And so that's what I want people to receive. I want people to receive a, a, a fuller and a more um, robust and radically loving faith, which is ultimately, I think, the faith that God offers us in Jesus. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He's a Baptist minister, activist, and author in North Carolina. He's written several books. The most recent couple have been Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, and Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. In those books, as well as in other writings, Jonathan has thought a lot about race, racism, the legacy that we have in our country as well as our churches, and what does it mean for Christians today to help reconstruct our society, to rebuild our society in a better way. And so I was really excited to have this conversation with him for this particular moment that we find ourselves in as we've seen protests around the country, declaring that Black Lives Matter, that we want to see an end to systemic racism, and so I really hope that you'll pay close attention to what Jonathan has to say as we're talking about these issues and the call for Christians in this moment. So here's my interview with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. First of all, Jonathan, thanks for joining us on the program. It's so great to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. I want to first ask, how are you doing? I know this is an unusual few months with coronavirus and you and your family and community. Have you all been staying safe and, and healthy during this time? Well, we have been healthy here in our household, and um, we have had some cases of COVID in our congregation. Uh, we've had one member who was living in a care facility who died of COVID, but like everyone in the world, we are adjusting and trying to make sense of this reality. There's the global pandemic. There's uh, a, you know, sizable recession on top of the extreme inequality that was already impacting communities like ours. And there's an uprising against racial injustice in the country. So you've got this, you know, incredible confluence of things that are all tied together. And we're living in the midst of a storm, the result of which, you know, we don't know what it's going to be. But I, I think, you know, just this past Sunday, we were looking at the prophet Amos and that, that powerful ending of chapter five, where he talks about rushing waters, you know, flowing through. And one of the things that happens in storms is that the water can surge 
happened here in our neighborhood just a few years ago. The, the water surged and it flooded, <laughs> it flooded the whole uh, creek bed. And after the storm has passed, there's a whole new landscape. So I, I, I think there's a possibility of course, there's a possibility that people will be hurt in that kind of destruction, but there's also the real possibility of reconstruction and of building um, uh, new structures and systems that recognize the dignity and humanity of everyone. And so that's what we're working towards. Yeah, and of course, that word reconstruction, I know, is, is a significant one. You've used that in a book, but there's also this idea then, I know some people talk about, you know, well, we need to reopen and we need to resume and we need to, you know, go back and and when you're talking about here is not just after coronavirus, not just going back to the way things were. Yeah. You're talking about reconstructing, rebuilding a different system, a different society. Yeah, well, going back to normal doesn't sound that good to people for whom you know normal was was bad. And I think that's that's the reality that that the poor people's campaign that I'm part of has been trying to lift for the last two years in this country. The fact that nearly half of the country is before coronavirus, before the current recession, nearly half of the country was living with its back against the wall. 140 million people in the United States are technically poor or low income, which means they're $400 away from not making their bills this month. And that means that when the you know government issues a stay at home order and says, you know, for the next two weeks, you need to stay at home and, and, and live on what you've stored up, it's absolutely impossible for half the country, right? And so what we've seen in terms of the spread of the virus and the deaths in this country is that the, the virus, which doesn't discriminate, has spread through the inequalities that are very real in our society, and it has resulted in us having the some of the highest deaths in the world. And I think that is, in some ways is, is sort of pulling the veil off our eyes. I mean, we've been given this lie of American exceptionalism for so long that a lot of people really do believe that, you know, this is the best place in the world to live. And as a matter of fact, this disease is, is revealing that we have allowed our government and our, you know, shared systems of public life to deteriorate to such a point that we don't have a capacity to respond in a way that can protect the most vulnerable in situations like this. And that, I think, should be a wake-up call for all of us. Well, as you mentioned, I mean, we're talking at a quite a significant time, and it is one of the reasons why I was really excited to have you on the program, as there are protests against racism and police brutality across the nation, every single state and several other countries over the last few weeks. And you're one who has given a lot of thought in your books and in your, your sermons and elsewhere about racism, about activism, about past movements. And I wonder what your thoughts are as you see this current wave of protest. Well, we all heard Brother George Floyd say, I can't breathe. And my thought about what we've seen ever since, almost three weeks now in our streets, is, uh, is that a, a lot of people heard that and said, I can't breathe either. You know, a lot of people are living with their backs against the wall. And in some ways, I don't think this current uprising can be explained apart from the months on end that people had spent, you know, living in uh, an economic crisis without appropriate relief from the only place it can come from in a situation like this, the, the, the government that, you know, that has um, the storehouses of our common life. And so... Uh, I mean, to to believe uh, it's it's an incredible claim 
that our government makes that that it's impossible for corporations to survive this without trillions of dollars of uh, you know free loans but families are supposed to live through it with $1200 for 4 months i mean it, it, you know it's it, it's incredible and and as in the midst of that of course so many people who are already poor and low wealth were called essential workers in the midst of it and told you know we need you to show up for work anyway and we're not even going to you know have the appropriate paid sick leave and PPE and other things in place to protect you from the virus spreading among you and your coworkers so we've seen incredible death rates in you know meat packing plants and among grocery workers and other people who were doing the work so that you know most people could stay home and yet those are the very positions that have been the lowest paid jobs in our society we used to call them service workers now we call them essential workers but we haven't given them the things that are essential for survival in that position and so i think all of that is behind the 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 outcry of people who are in the streets and i i would uh, just encourage people to look closely at who's there it's certainly a cry for racial justice but it's not just about police brutality it is not just about the way the police treat black people because in the streets you see black white and brown native americans have joined the protests there are uh, you know a, a wide range of the sort of multicultural reality of what america is is out in the streets saying you know we we recognize that the racial injustice that we have inherited as part of this nation's story has created inequalities that are impacting all of us and that are choking the life out of this democracy and so i think this uprising is really about reclaiming democracy in this current moment and i pray and and hope that um we don't just you know get stuck in talking about banning chokeholds or some you know little police reform and as a matter of fact i mean we need to be talking about how systemic racism has created voter suppression that has created you know public leadership that is not representative of most of the people and that what's really happening here in the great tradition of reconstruction in this country is people coming together to build a fusion coalition that is demanding that the structures of our common life be rebuilt in order to serve all the people. Well, it's also been fascinating to watch is one of the things that has happened particularly over the past week it seems has been this movement against Confederate monuments across the country. They've been defaced, they've been torn down by protesters, by officials. It's even gone global. We've seen statues of slave traders in the United Kingdom have been torn down. And so I wonder what your thoughts are about this as well, because it's gotten a lot of attention. There's been some debate about it, especially for Christians, thinking about how should we be responding to these memorials to Confederates and slave traders in the first place? Well, you know, I'm a biblicist. I'm a Baptist. I was raised <laughs> on the Bible. So when I see people pulling down statues from the Asherah poles, you know, I go straight to the Old Testament. This is very biblical. It's a very biblical thing to come to a, a moment of crisis conversion and to realize that the gods you have worshipped have been killing you. And so you have to do something about it. Now, it must be said that uh, a lot of Christianity in this country, particularly white Christianity, has been carefully guided. We've been carefully guided to 
respect law and order above all else. And so, you know, I know people feel uncomfortable about this, but I would simply say, if, if you feel discomfort when you see people radically questioning public systems that have been killing them, then you should go back and read the Exodus story, you know, and read it from the perspective of how would you have felt if you were an Egyptian? Go back and read, you know, the stories of Israel while in exile, whether in Babylon or Persia. Or Think about how you would have read it if you were a Babylonian, if you were a, a, a Persian. The, you know, just this, this, this idea that we have associated ourselves so much with the governing authorities that we can't imagine what it's like to be on the receiving end of the violence that these systems have created in this country, particularly for black, brown, and poor people. And the other thing I would say, this is what I spent a good bit of time trying to walk white Christians through in that book, uh, Reconstructing the Gospel, that in particular with these Confederate monuments, that, uh, that they in many ways are symbols of a lie that we've been told and that we've told ourselves about what happened in the past and about what Christianity did in response. I mean, the, the Christianity that justified slaveholding before the Civil War was essentially the same in, in terms of both the message and the people who were bringing the message of the so-called redemption movement that overthrew Reconstruction in the South and that initiated and backed white supremacy governments after Reconstruction in the late 19th and then early 20th century. And it's incredibly important to re recognize the history of these monuments. 80-some percent of these monuments were put up during that period of white supremacist rule when Jim Crow was made law in Southern states and, um, and, and even some of the monuments that are outside of the South went up at that same time period because that redemption movement really nationalized white supremacy. Um, I mean, we can't forget that Woodrow Wilson was president, you know, former Princeton University president from New Jersey, and yet he is the is the president who you know invited the the new motion picture Birth of a Nation to be shown in the White House, who resegregated you know federal offices in D.C., who made segregation and Jim Crow practices national policy while he was president. And that is the time period when most of these monuments were going up. And so to say that these monuments need to come down because they are symbolic of the compromise, not only of our constitutional commitments, but of our faith commitments to white supremacy, I think is an incredibly important thing. It's a time, it is a time for smashing idols. And I believe as a Christian that there's a great biblical precedent for that. And so I, uh, I, I celebrate when I see the monuments come down. Our uh, Confederate soldier here in Durham came down after the uh, massacre at Charlottesville a couple of years ago. And um, I went downtown the, the day or so after that happened when, when folks gathered. And uh, I thought it was a beautiful representation of our city, all the people who live here coming together and uh, uh, celebrating a new kind of future. Any country that recognizes that it was born out of a revolution against an established government, uh, which we were, ought to recognize that 
you know, revolutionary change is sometimes necessary. And we as Christians should pray that that revolution can be nonviolent because so many revolutions in the history of the world have not been. And so, so I'm grateful to see people taking direct action to destroy the idols that have represented white supremacy and to be largely working together for a nonviolent reconstruction of our public life. I think that's the, that's the great good news um, of this. And, and I've even seen this movement disciplining itself and instructing the, uh, particularly the sort of um, anarchist type folks who show up to take seriously who bears the burden of the violence that happens in, in, in these marches. You know, when someone loots or when someone throws something at the police, it's the black folks out there who are telling the largely young white people who've been doing this, look, you know, this lands on us. We're going to insist on change. We're going to, uh, you know, even insist on revolutionary change, but we are not going to succumb to the sorts of tactics and violence that inevitably leads to to more violence. I think that's an incredible leadership that's happening right there on the streets. But you mentioned your book, Reconstruction the Gospel, which, I mean, I have several of your books, and so I don't want to like pick out one over the other because they've, they've all been so good. But that is a particularly, I think, important book. And this concept that you talk about of slaveholder religion, that's a, a term that has resonated that I, I feel like continuing to try to unpack myself of what does it mean to deal with that slaveholder theology that we have inherited that's been passed on to us. And so I wonder if you could talk about that concept a little bit about the work that we still need to be doing on slaveholder theology and unpacking that. Well, it's been the work of my life. And so uh, it's it's certainly ongoing work and something that I continue to learn. I've, I've, I, what I've said here about monuments and such is that it, it has a particular history, right? So once you recognize that our faith, Christian faith, has been used to justify white supremacy, then what I try to do in that book and have tried to do, you know, in conversation with faith communities around the country is to look at the particular patterns and practices that have continued from that slaveholder religion, even when we're no longer explicitly uh, trying to justify the things that the theology or the practices were initially developed to justify. And um, I think I think it's important to look at the more subtle ways that that happens. I mean, one of the primary ones that I think has impacted American Christianity across the board is when you look in the 19th century at the way the gospel was framed by the preachers of slaveholder religion to be a message that was essentially about the salvation of souls and their eternal destiny rather than justice in this present world and the well-being of souls here and now. That had everything to do with the arguments they were making for why it was actually a good thing in their mind to enslave other human beings. They said if those you know, dark Africans had died in pagan Africa, they would have gone to hell. But since they are here, they have heard this gospel. Now, that is not in any way the, the gospel that the enslaved people heard and believed. 
the gospel they heard was about the God who raised Israel out of Egypt and Jesus from the dead and gave them hope that, you know, when the folks saying, go down Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh, let my people go, that, that that song was speaking directly to their slave masters, the people who claimed to own them. So that's that's two gospels. And I think the gospel that uh, uh, emerges out of that religion and practice of people who met God out there on the corners of the plantations is a gospel that that is necessarily a personal relationship with God that engages you in a struggle with the injustices of this world. This gospel that says, you know, your eternal salvation is the main thing and uh, what you get when you get Jesus is you get your ticket punched to, to take your trip to heaven when you die. That gospel is, I think, very much still with us. And the fact that we can talk about that as the gospel rather than the necessary demand of a struggle for justice, uh, I think has everything to do with why Christianity has accommodated itself to white supremacy and other injustices in our world. I mean, the I think the only way you could imagine a people who believe that the creator of the universe took on flesh and dwelt among us, denying the very clear evidence that we are facing a climate crisis and that if we don't change our way of life, we are destroying the earth that has been entrusted to us. The only way that Christian people could uh, believe that in the context of this is that we have this watered down gospel that came from people who justified slavery. And um, I think it impacts us in those very specific ways today. And so unlearning the habits of slaveholder religion is really essential for telling the truth about where we are in the world, who we are in the world, and what we really face. Yeah, you know, one of the things I appreciate about you talking about that is, I think a lot of times it seems like in our white churches, we're tempted to say, okay, well, we've learned our lesson, you know, we'll keep reading the Bible the same way, but P.S. no more enslaving people or no more lynching people. And and you're telling us, no, it's not, that's not enough. We need to go back and and imagine how we were reading the Bible in the that way in the first place that even led us to justify these types of actions. Yeah. As you're talking, I know we have both been inspired by the same person, and it's Clarence Jordan, who who is very imaginative in the way that he read the Bible. And, and I think one of the reasons why I'm inspired by him is that he could see something when others couldn't see it in the white community in the South. And, and there's something about the way he read the Bible and saw it lived out today that I think is something that you're helping us to unpack as well. And so I really appreciate that example that you're continuing to, to, to help us unpack and think about today. Well, you know, what I learned from Brother Clarence, who I never got to know, he was he was dead by the time I started reading him, but I, um, I have gotten to know the community at Koinonia Farm. And um, what I've learned from that witness is that as a matter of fact, we all do see the contradiction. What people like Clarence and Koinonia give to us is a witness of what it looks like when you see the contradiction and are unable to compromise with it. I think a lot of us have just said, well, you know, that's the way it is. Something doesn't feel right about it, but you got to go along, you know, that's just the reality. And, uh, you know, 1940s, in the midst of a segregated South, Koinonia Farm just said, no, 
you know, we don't think you have to go along with Jim Crow. Black and white folks made by the same God, who worship the same God, can work on the farm together. And when it's dinner time, they can sit down at the same table and eat together. That was a radical notion, you know, got the got the clan out there shooting at them after after a while. And um, and it was it was both because of their quiet and, you know, just straightforward determination to live the gospel, but also because of their recognition that once you've realized that that's what the gospel means, you have to stand with those who are challenging the injustices of this world. They attacked Koinonia because Clarence Jordan had started supporting the people who were trying to integrate the University of Georgia because he was a graduate of the university and he had some power to uh, support their applications. And so, so despite, you know, the fact that they had been there for 15 years bearing this witness, it was, it was their willingness to engage in the struggle for justice in public life that led to the attacks. And I think both of those things are incredibly important. On a little bit more personal note, I wanted to, to note that you have served as for many years as associate minister at a historically black Baptist church. And I wonder if you could talk about what that experience has meant to you in your life, how it's impacted your faith, a little bit of, of that community that you have invested your life and ministry in. Yes, I am a member of the St. John's Missionary Baptist Church, which is a part of the East Cedar Grove Missionary Baptist Church Association, which was founded in, well, it, it was founded by a collection of churches, the oldest of which were established in 1865 on the corners of what was the largest plantation in North Carolina at that time. And so I uh, am deeply grateful for that community of faith that that received and has passed on to generations the faith of those people who, while they were yet enslaved, knew the good news that God was for their freedom. One of the gifts of this place is that we still sing the songs. We sing the songs that people learn to sing out there in the woods what they called the brush arbors of the of the plantations, the uh, spirituals that that cry out for God and for uh, God's way to bring about change in this world. And so, it has been a great home, a, a nurturing home for me, as someone I think very much in recovery from the lies of slaveholder religion to be loved and. Uh, cared for by a community that that is in this tradition of a of what I really believe is a different gospel has been good news to me so deeply grateful we have like uh, all all of the african american community that has recognized the disproportionate impact of uh, covid you know we have been very careful in recent months with gathering and so um, We've been three months of uh, holding church over Zoom with a congregation, you know, the average age of which is probably sometime in the mid, somewhere in the mid 60s. So it's been an interesting time. (laughs) 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 But it's it's a beautiful thing even to see those traditions of singing together and praying together and receiving the preached word together over these computers like we're using right now. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a living tradition that has to continue to navigate the challenges and the uh, systems of this world. Who knew we would uh, praise God so much for Zoom? (laughs) (laughs) 
and have to teach each other while we're on it. If you sing while she's singing, right. it's going to only hear you. <laughs> you got to mute yourself while the while the uh, soloist is singing, or we're only going to hear you. We got those conversations live. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we're all used to singing along, but we got to turn our microphones off. Hallelujah. <laughs> You've also worked closely the last several years with the Reverend William Barber, who I won't go through his full bio, but he's known for a lot of different projects, including Moral Mondays several years ago, much more recently, the Poor People's Campaign. And I know that Saturday, June 20th has been a big date in that effort for a long time. So can you tell us what you all are working on this year and how this, this particularly this Poor People's Campaign, this activism with Reverend Barber over the last several years, how that's impacted you and your faith? Well... Reverend Barber has been a great mentor to me since I was 16 years old, took me under his wing and taught me much of this tradition that I've been talking about. And uh, I think we are in a moment where his leadership is incredibly important as the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, which has, you know, in this moment when we when we are seeing an uprising and we and we are you know, considering uh, radical transformative change in the systems of our public life, whether it's, you know, the local police or federal policy, it's incredibly important in a moment like this to have a, a, a tradition that has looked at reconstruction, that has worked toward it. And in the case of the Poor People's Campaign, that has built the broadest coalition of national justice organizations, as well as local and state-based advocacy groups and grassroots, you know, organizing groups that have said, we're going to work together to have a common moral agenda that really looks at all that needs to change if we're going to address the systemic inequities of our uh, common life. And that's what June 20th is about. This Saturday on June 20th, we're having a mass digital assembly. This will be the first time we've been able to do this in this you know, current moment that we're living in. We've had lots of protests organized locally, but this is all of these groups coming together, You know, groups that have been thinking carefully about systemic racism and about systemic poverty and about ecological devastation and the way that's tied to these things and about the, the way our investment in a war economy has depleted resources that we need to address these things and and about the way that the distorted moral narrative of Christian nationalism has been used to really manipulate people of faith to not see these basic justice issues that we've been talking about all those things together so we've got you know national unions and you know organizations that bring together labor we've got uh, environmental justice groups. We've got 16 different national religious denominations and lots of local religious bodies. You know, folks like us Baptists are hard to organize nationally, but we've got lots of Baptists involved in different ways. So this this is a huge coalition of hundreds and hundreds of organizations that are coming together to create a platform so that the people who are most directly impacted by what's happening in our world can speak, can, can tell the truth about what they're experiencing. And so we can present together an agenda for the kind of change that uh, really would make a difference in our world. And, and so we can say to politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, this is what we want to see represented in public life. And so if you're running for office this fall, we want to see you embrace this moral agenda and, and, and that we are, you know, we are this, this collection of 100 and 
40 million people who've kind of been marginalized in this country and we're going to unite and we're going to vote together and we know that that has the power to really transform what our conversations in public life are about i just say this one thing when when i talk to people about the election this year i think it's incredibly important to realize you know that it was a very close election in 2016 about 65 million people voted for hillary clinton about 63 million people voted for donald trump but 100 million people didn't vote and uh the i think the capacity to organize even a small percentage of those people who haven't felt like anyone in the political system represented them and to push back against the sort of voter suppression measures that made it difficult for some of those people to vote both of those things together i think create the possibility that we could push forward with an agenda that would shift the conversation in public life and would have us really, you know, the next time around having a very different kind of consideration of even who's who, who's running and what kind of platforms they're presenting. So that's the goal of this movement, to, to shift the moral narrative in our country and to have us talking much more about how we can have policies that guarantee the well-being of everyone in this country. Uh, I don't know. You're a Baptist minister getting in politics there now, so that's dangerous ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm without a doubt that the, Bi- that the Bible is political. I think the ways it has been uh, manipulated and abused to support politics that are dangerous has to be resisted. But black folks taught me a long time ago, you can't read the Bible and, and not acknowledge that it has political implications. That's what I was just about to ask you to, the you know, we can't, our, our faith can't be apolitical. In that case, we're just supporting the politics of the status quo. So for June 20th, what, what, what can people do? How do they get involved? How do they join in? Well, because it's a digital mass gathering from wherever you are, you can join us. Go to june2020.org and you can register now, which will get, give you all of the information about how to uh, log on. But, um, you know, there's going to be a live stream. It's going to be airing on several radio networks around the country. It'll be live streamed on MSNBC on uh, Saturday morning at 10 a.m. And um, I think it, some of the different channels are going to have it at other times throughout the weekend. But but go to June2020.org and sign up because as much as our getting together is important, it's also important that we know how to stay connected and organize and mobilize together after this event. So june2020.org, you can register there. Well, I want to end on one note, and we've talked a lot about these issues that are happening, and particularly for white Christians like like you and I, white Baptists who kind of grew up in a, in a tradition that supported slavery. And you've you've mentioned a bit of your evolution, and, and, and that doc, uh, Dr. Barber was part of that. And so I, I wonder, as kind of a closing thought to other white Baptists who might be listening, what are some ways that they could head down this journey as well. What are some practical steps that you would encourage as each one of us works to kind of unpack and shed some of that slaveholder religion that we have inherited? Well, the thing I would say is I've been on this road myself and as I've talked to so many people who have grappled with this, the biggest obstacle is fear. And I think it's important to, to try to name what the fear is. And uh, so often, what it comes down to is that many people, even in an unspoken way, many people down in their gut fear that if they begin to untangle their Jesus 
from their white identity that they're going to lose their Jesus. And what I would say, again, as somebody who's been on this way, is that the Jesus I've come to know by disentangling from white supremacy and from slaveholder religion is so much more alive, so much more active, and so much more... Well, I, the, the word that comes to mind is um, radical love, right? I I wouldn't give anything for the Jesus who I've come to know in the radical love tradition of people who recognize that that the way our faith has been twisted and misused has actually diminished the gift of our faith. And so that's what I want people to receive. I want people to receive a a fuller and a more um, robust and radically loving faith, which is ultimately, I think, the faith that God offers us in Jesus. So so, so that would be my encouragement to people along the way. I, I know that fear is real, and I think you, the only way to deal with it is to face it. But I can testify from personal experience that um, what you, whatever you might lose, and there are losses, right? I mean, there are in terms of you know relationships and practices that are so caught up in that tradition that you you can't sustain them if you decide to really do this work. And yet, I would say that there's so much more because with with the Jesus of the radical love tradition is also the beloved community of all the people who God has been drawing together to build up you know a, a beloved community that represents what uh, the New Testament calls the ecclesia, the the gathering out of this world of those into a new way who would, uh, you know, demonstrate what God's love looks like in the earth. That, you know, that, that might not look like the local congregation you've always been part of, but what I can testify is that it's real. It's real and it extends beyond what we normally call church. The Spirit is doing things in the world that are sometimes out in the streets, that are sometimes in, you know, little meetings in households, sometimes out on farms in rural Georgia. I mean, you know, God, God, the God movement is bigger than I was taught to imagine. And I, I would just invite people to be part of that. I think it's good news for all of us. I think that's a great note to close on. And thank you so much, Jonathan, for your time for all that you have done, uh, for what you've been writing and preaching to us. I've appreciated over the years, and I know many others have. So thank you for being with us. Well, good to be with you. Bless you and all the Baptists. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove at his website, jonathanwilsonhartgrove.com. And of course, you can just type in his name and search for his books wherever you buy those. As always, you can find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. It, it really does help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wardenway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, I have a deal for you. One year for 50% off, 
just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about the program, you can email me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.